Hello everyone, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Just before we get started today, I want to just acknowledge that I am a couple weeks behind on getting a few episodes published. June was a really crazy month and I've been sitting on a couple recorded episodes that just haven't been edited yet, but we'll get those posted soon and back on track. So thank you for your patience on that. And as always, thank you for your interest in the show and thank you for your listening. Six Ways from Sunday is a weekly podcast that offers some personal ministry through storytelling and through inquiry about life's biggest questions. We're creating a community of seekers and curious hearts who are looking for some spiritual fulfillment and nourishment by drawing inspiration and learning from each other's lives and from each other's unique perspectives. Today's guest is a man named Thomas Atum O'Kane, and he goes by Atum. Atum is the founder and director of the Spiritual Guidance Wisdom School, and he teaches various interfaith-based programs in five different countries, including at the Hollyhock Institute on Cortez Island in BC, and once a year he also comes to Camrose, Alberta, where friends of his host a workshop in their home. They just finished that workshop this past weekend, and it's called The Pilgrimage of Incarnation. One of our listeners was at the workshop and made the connection for me to meet with Atum a few days ago, and we had a really wonderful conversation. We touched on a lot of great topics like relationships, distractions and mindfulness, death, finding purpose, and the role of religion. But the main theme of our conversation, I would say, was exploring how we as a human race can navigate life on this planet during a time of such radical change and transition. So I invite you to relax, take a couple nice deep belly breaths to clear your head, and please join me in welcoming my guest, Atum. Atum, thank you so much for coming on the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. It's really an honor to meet you and to uh, I just appreciate you taking some time out of your day to have a conversation with me. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben, for the invitation. So I understand that you were here this weekend um, at your friend Kevin's place uh, leading a, a course. So you, you and I were uh, sort of introduced through a friend of a friend kind of a situation and, and don't know each other super well. So I'm really curious to hear about how this course went and then to just get into some of your story and how you got into doing this type of, of work. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about the framework of the weekend that you just completed here in Camrose, Alberta. Well, one of the quotes that's most informed my life has come from Carl Jung. And he said about each individual life, it's a tremendous victory that a human being is able to hold a center of consciousness through the tidal waves of the different experiences in life that come at you and also the tidal waves from the different things that arise up from the unconscious in your inner life. That a human being can hold a center of consciousness through that whole journey is a tremendous victory, he said. That quote was like an earthquake for me because I looked around and I wondered how many people have any idea of that tremendous victory in their own life. How many people die not really seeing a deep and profound meaning to their life and what they live through and what they've unfolded in their being and what they've accomplished with their life? So then I saw there's a lot of tragedy in our culture 
because we don't help people see that. We don't help people even be aware of that. What has, what has your, the real meaning of your journey been? So the name of the course is The Pilgrimage of Incarnation. As I mentioned earlier to you, I've led over 55 pilgrimages to sacred Jewish places, Christian places, Buddhist places, etc., sacred places of the world. And then it made me realize, oh, our own life is it a journey, it's a pilgrimage of incarnation. And what defines a diff the difference between a tourist and a pilgrim? A pilgrim makes an outer journey to find something that's already inside. Hmm. And the journey is a catalyst. And where you choose to go or where you're called to go, the sacred space, has something to do with what's inside, something to be found inside. So for me, you could look, or we could look, at our life as our incarnation is a pilgrimage. And in the process of the pilgrimage, there's a self-discovery of a deeper dimension of our being, which some call soul, some call our Buddha nature. But there is quite consistency in the great traditions that there is a discovery, a deeper reality in us. So are you able to take people in just a short span of a few days into that deep place? I mean, I'm sure that most of the people that you have led or have, have taught through courses like this weekend are people who are somewhere on that journey already. They're curious or they're searching for something or they've maybe done a lot of that um, soul work or personal growth work already in their life. What can be accomplished in a few days? Well, one of the things that I see as a purpose of my life is the programs I offer are a means for people to remember. Today, a lot of people have had exposure to psycholo psychology and their own inner work and different psychological theories and also different traditions of spirituality. But how much does one remember from all those programs? So many people have shelves and shelves of notebooks, hundreds of books that they've read, but how do we remember in a culture that offers no support to remember? So hopefully for some people who come, I offer new material, but for deeply experienced people who have journeyed in great depth, we all need to be reminded. A Sufi teacher of mine, one of my major mentors, the first thing he ever said to me personally is the secret of life is to remember. The problem is we're always forgetting. Hmm. Yeah, the retention and re and the power to recall is is a really weak point for most human beings, it seems. But I think that it's I think it's something that's getting worse too, because uh, well, a large part as technology is advancing, we kind of have, have offloaded that responsibility to like, well, I don't really need to remember that. I can search through my emails and just hit that search bar and and, and bring it up digitally. Um, because everything is saved and stored in, in the cloud. Whereas in just previous generations, even just like I think about my grandparents, their ability to remember their early childhood was incredible. I would sit with my, my mom's dad, my granddad, and he would tell me about experiences he had in grade one. And I'm thinking... I'd sit there and think, I, I don't remember my grade one teacher's name. Like I have very few memories from that, those years. And he's in his, you know, in his eighties at the time and telling me these stories. I think, how the heck can you remember so clearly? But it's, and maybe I'm just a 
worse than the average, but I, I think that honing that ability to be able to retain what you've learned, it would be huge for, for your, our own internal work that we're doing for human relationships. I mean, we, uh, we all fall into patterns where we have the same arguments over and over again with people in our lives. We have the same fights over and over again because we think we've got it figured out, we've learned the lesson, and then we fall into the same mistake again. We're like creatures of, of pattern and habit. So I'm sure that you, you see that all over the place in the work that you do. Well, one thing that is enhanced greatly is distraction. Mm-hmm. We're distracted all the time. Your grandfather wasn't distracted all the time. He didn't carry a cell phone. Mm. He didn't carry something that could enter his life at any moment with a ring or a chime. And we immediately pick it up no matter where we are. And then we go on to it. Or when there's a space to just be, you'll notice most people today, especially young people, immediately turn to their smartphone. Mm. Rather than having the space to just be in the present moment, which is a core teaching of Buddhism, people immediately go to their cell phone. It's a distraction. It mm -hmm. fragments consciousness. It's the inability to stay in the present moment. Now, your grandfather was doing a task that goes with his stage of life. He was remembering his life and honoring his journey. So when he told you stories of first grade and who the teacher was, he's at a stage of life that needs to look for what was the meaning of the wholeness of the journey. How do I integrate it? Right. And that used to very much be the task when generations lived close together. The older person was looked upon as holding a certain kind of wisdom from having lived through many seasons of their life. Mm. And then the task at the end of their life was to pass that wisdom on through stories to a younger generation, and that would put some wisdom seeds in them for the future of their life. Mm. We don't really have that in a lot of parts of the world today. Families are much more fragmented in terms of where they live. So I think the, the distraction is key. And in a Buddhist teaching, they speak about find the good seeds, plant the good seeds, water the good seeds, cultivate the good seeds, and harvest them. So if we expect our iPhone to hold the good seed, then we're not planting it in our heart. We're not planting it in our being. And we don't turn to ourself to remember it, because we have to remember it in a certain way of being, in a certain state. It's not just information. So I need to plant the good seed in my heart and hold it in a feeling state that relates to and nurtures that good seed. That's very different than just turning my iPhone on and scrolling to the information and then reading it, and not necessarily being aware of what state goes with the good seed. I can mm. read it as information, so what? And some of it might even be great and yeah. valuable. And it may just be I read it as information. So if you're going to take in spiritual teachings, you have to be in a certain state to take them in. It's not just information. Otherwise, we have, <laughs> you know, people have three houses today, three garages today. Mm. The first two garages contain the two cars. The third garage is for all the stuff that can no longer fit in the attic or in the basement. <laughs> we are accumulators in our culture, and we're doing the same thing with our mind. 
we're filling ourselves with all kinds of information and never asking, is this really relevant yeah. to the deepest journey of my life? So we get confused between information and really seeding ourselves with deep wisdom seeds from whatever tradition we're called to. Mm. And to do that, you have to be in a certain state of being. Your heart has to be in a certain state of being. Your mind has to be in a certain state of being for the seeds to really take hold inwardly. You know, I can hold his information, but so what? It, that's why a mentor of mine in the Jewish tradition said, I'm only the ahas I've integrated. All the others came and went just like the weather. Yeah, that's so good, hey? And in, you have to and do and that work, integrate them in yourself. Mm-hmm. So. so integrating it into your being, um, it really comes down to putting that wisdom or that information into action. So it's, I think of um, times that I've uh, been really ineffective in communication or hurt someone and, and then apologized. And it's like, yeah, the, the I'm sorry doesn't really mean anything. Show me. Like, or even, yeah, I mean, with, with, any, with anything, it's, it's not just the words. It's what you're doing with it. Um, my wife was in a, in a meditation course recently, and she, one of the things she was telling me about it was this concept that the, the anatomy of a thought. And she said that what she learned was that thinking or thoughts are simply information and energy. And that, that, was, that kept coming into my head as you were talking about, you know, you can just take something as information, but does it do anything? And it takes energy for work to happen or for, um, for something to have fruit. And so maybe that's that, that missing piece that often is the, the energy. You have, to, you have to be in that right energetic state, uh, like you talked about even, to receive it in a meaningful way. Otherwise, it is just an aha that just comes and goes. Like, oh, that's brilliant. That's a great quote. I'm going to share that or forward that or, <laughs> you know, hit the like button and then it's gone. That's very well said. Um, but let's take the example where you felt you realized something you said hurt a person. I believe that's the example you gave. And then uh, one can say, well, I'm sorry. Now, you can say that from a persona place because that's what the culture says to do, is to say, I'm sorry, but not necessarily from the depth of your heart. And the other person, if they're discerning, feels the difference. Mm. So yeah, they're polite words. You said the formula that the culture gives. You said, I'm sorry. And what the culture implies, well, then it should all be forgotten. There's no problem. But if, if your wife says that to you, you're going to be living together for a long time. So she wants to know, are you going to change the behavior? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to get this same experience again and again and again for the rest of my life? So you could say, I'm sorry, a million times in the course of your marriage. But if it doesn't change behavior, the wound keeps perpetuating deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. So if your wife has discernment, which I'm sure she has, she wants to see you change. Not just for her benefit, so she's no longer wounded out of unconsciousness, but for you to also grow, and that's one of the gifts of a marriage, for you also to grow so you become more conscious Mm. of what you say and what the effect is going to be on another person. Yeah. 
That's the way we change into greater consciousness. You'll have to do some work, and she'll have to hold you accountable. And then you both celebrate when it's changed, mm -hmm. and the marriage has a new consciousness. Now, there are things that you would also ask the same of your wife to make change. Of course, yeah. So from my perspective, in any deep relationship, we help each other. We're on a journey together. I've married about 50 people. It's a recognition we're going to make a journey together. And I see two essential functions. One is, out of the love that we have shared, I've seen your soul. And I will remember and carry your soul even when you don't remember. Hmm. And I'll remind you. And the second is we all have places of being unconscious. So when we live in a marriage or close relationship, we're there a lot. We get to observe and experience a lot. And it's very helpful when a partner holds up a place of unconsciousness and says, see this, you have the opportunity to make it conscious. Mm. To bring it into, into view, what was in the blind spot. You got it. Yeah. And to me, that's why we have two feet, two hands, two eyes, two nostrils. Well, there's two, for me, two central tasks in that kind of relationship. And I think it's also true between parent and child and between friends. Practice of friendship is the same thing. Hmm. We'll be soul carriers for each other, dream carriers for each other. But if we really love each other and we see how unconsciousness creates suffering for my friend and maybe for me and other people, then also part of the depth of the commitment to the friendship is without judgment, simply mirror that as a place of awareness. Mm. Now that's not easy because it means without judgment and reactivity. The person is most likely to see it if you hold it up from a clear place of awareness. Mm. Then they have nothing to react to. Right. So... Just awareness without making it wrong or making um, a judgment of the, the person. It's just a, it's a behavior. It's a pattern. Yes, and it, it's seeking to come into awareness. There's an opportunity. It is seeking in yourself to come into awareness. There's an opportunity in the exchange of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And there's a gift. There's someone who can hopefully reflect that back to you. Yeah. And what often happens is people feel so inadequate that the moment something is reflected back with the slightest sense of judgment, then they go into shame and guilt and all those pieces. Yeah. And then or the awareness my big is one is defensiveness. Okay. <laughs> I go right into, no, and here's all the reasons that, I'm, <laughs> that I didn't do that wrong. And yeah. Ah, and <laughs> the question to ask, of course, is what are you defending? Mm -hmm. Is it the fear of being heard? Is it the shame that you did something, quote, wrong? I mean, we all have elements of unconsciousness, and it's seeking to become conscious. Yeah, I, I really think that is the greatest gift of marriage in that it, it creates a relationship with such, such intensity, consistency, and uh, vulnerability that you have the opportunity to do that for each other in a way that is in our culture almost it's just and even in, in a lot of marriages it doesn't happen but 
in most relationships today in our society, there isn't that level of honesty or willingness to be direct, willingness to, um, to risk confrontation for the greater reward of what can come from, from having those difficult conversations. Well, there has to be a deep trust for that to take place. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know, Anderson Cooper's mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, just died. She was a very famous person because of a, tri a trial in her childhood. But um, later in her life, actually about five years ago, uh, they sat down together and made a commitment to have an honest conversation about whatever was incomplete. Hmm. And there's a book about that journey together. Oh, wow. It is astounding to read. What's the name of the book for anyone that might be interested in checking it out? Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's by Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt. Okay. And when I look at, you know, she was probably in her 80s when they made that commitment for a year. <coughs> Excuse me. And he got to ask all these questions from his childhood that were not really clear answers for him. So the, the title of the book is Nothing Left Unsaid. Yes. Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. There you Thanks go. Grant. The title says Jamie. it. <laughs> Thank you. The title says it. Yeah. They were looking for completion in the relationship and to bring to completion those things that were incomplete so that there was a wholeness in the relationship. And not waiting until the... The, the scene from the movies where someone's on their deathbed and it's time to have all those. I had a great conversation with a friend recently who he was, um, I was privileged to have him share some stories with me about the, um, the end of his father's life. And uh, his dad was a farmer and uh, was not a man of many words when it came to sharing his feelings, but they had a closeness. They had a very, they had a great relationship, it sounds like. And there, uh, we just, we talked about how, even if you, you have these things in your head that, oh, when, when it gets to the end, I'm going to have to make sure that I clean this up or have, bring this to completion or have that conversation. Very rarely do end of life situations look like that in real life where you have that bedside, you know, heart to heart that's in so many movies that it's, you, you, you have to have those conversations as you go through life. So that at the end, there, there isn't all of this piled up um, baggage that needs to be sorted through. Because that's not the time to be doing it anyway. I would totally agree with you. And I would say, for those who are exposed to that kind of awareness, do it as you go through your life. If it's not something you've been aware of, especially start at 50. Hmm. And really look at where are the incomplete pieces of my life? Where are the things that I... And we have that beautiful phrase, rest in peace. Well, we say that when someone dies. But actually what we should be saying is saying it all along. Is hmm. if this piece I do not have peace about, if the completion is not there, if there's fragmentation, alienation, uh, no matter how far back, I need to look at how do I bring it to a state of peace mm. so it rests in peace. Now, I may have to do just the work inside me because another person may not be willing or capable of doing it. Maybe I don't know where they are. Maybe they have died. 
Mm. But how do I bring it to completion mm-hmm. for myself so that when I come to the time of death, as both Christ and Buddha said, it is complete. That which mm-hmm. had to have been done has been done. It is fulfilled. There's, um, there's a great uh, kind of principle uh, that's uh, a big part of uh, some personal growth that I've had over the last six or seven years and a lot of it has been through uh, landmark education. Like I've taken the landmark forum and some other courses. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that at all. But um, one of the, the principles is that in any relationship, it only takes one person to choose to be 100% responsible for the situation or for the relationship. So it's not about changing the other person or um, doing their work that they might have the opportunity to do or things that they could be bringing into their consciousness. But this idea that we have in our culture of like, well, I'll do my half as long as you do your half. Like there's a conditionality to it or I'm going to, I'm going to say sorry as long as you forgive me. Like that's not what apology is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so the, there is an incredible opportunity when you shift your paradigm to realizing that, Hey, I could be a hundred percent responsible if I choose to, to take a stand for whatever the situation or the relationship is. Well, I would agree in the sense that I can be 100% responsible for my part. But what happens is sometimes people feel, by my being 100% responsible, you don't have to be 100% responsible. I'll accept 40% from you. So I think a deeper relationship is one in which both people show up. Mm -hmm. Both people are accountable. And uh, sometimes... We also have the term codependency. So sometimes you have someone who will do all the work, and yet there's a dependency in the relationship. I think a mature relationship, and I've noticed that in long-term marriages, that in a mature relationship in which the journey has been very rich, there's an accountability on both people's parts. There has been a commitment on both people's parts to do their work to Mm -hmm. do their piece. So yes, it has to start with yourself. I will make the 100% commitment to do the work. Now, I'll be challenged in that 100% commitment Mm -hmm. to see how true it is that I'm making that commitment. And, um, but I cannot then uh, be in a situation which, but you can only do 40 because that's all you want to do. If you want a relationship in which there's that true, very deep meeting. So there, for me, that's a mature relationship. Mm-hmm. Both people are accountable. And I, you know, we are so fixated on romantic love as the only form of the journey. This needs to exist between parent and children. This needs to exist between friends. This needs to exist between teacher and student. Wherever there's a deep bond, there needs to be that showing up Mm. and being accountable out of love. Absolutely. Um, That just uh, brought up for me a a book, actually, that I'll also recommend to anyone listening that wants to check this out. Uh, My uncle, who I was just telling Grant about, um, his name is Brady Wilson, and he's written several books, but one of his first books was called Love at Work. And I love the play on words because... It's an examination of what can happen when love is at work, but it's also specific. It's written for the workplace, Mm -hmm. and it talks about how love, the different forms of love. 
and what can be transformed or unlocked in people's potential when you literally bring love to work and love the people that you work with. Like, it doesn't just have to stay at home. You can love people when you're in line at Starbucks. You can love the politician that you voted for or the team that you're cheering for. Like, love, it, it is to share with everyone. And so, anyway, that's if... Uh, yeah, it's it's a great book though, Love at Work by Brady Wilson. So I want to switch gears with you a little bit, and okay. we've we've talked uh, already um, a little bit here and there about some of the things that are changing a lot, just that we've even seen in our lifetimes that are different from like I was saying with my grandfather and his recalling of his childhood and how how different our world is today than then. We've talked about technology and the impact that um, smartphones are having on our uh, ability to stay present in the moment with being that we're living in this time of um, of so much change so much rapid change and transition what do you think is required of us or what is the opportunity to help us as a species really navigate these new times that we're that we're in and what in the direction that the the train seems to be heading in what do you make of all of that well, the Jewish mentor I spoke of, Reb Zalman Shachter, once said to me, you know, if you look over the history of humanity, there are three or four great times to be incarnated, and we're in one of them. Now, what he was speaking about is in the world of myth, there's something, and I mean the study of myth as it has had a purpose in human journeys. There's certain periods that are called axial ages in which there is a huge shift in consciousness all around the planet. So it, this is sometimes referred to as the fourth axial age. Now I'm speaking about real scholars, I'm not talking about pop theories. So I just, from the field of mythology. Hmm. And I believe that we're in that time because we have no choice. With the consciousness humanity has had, there's no way to go forward given the ecological disasters that we're facing. So what most is most needed, and I've seen the Dalai Lama receive an honorary doctorate at the University of Michigan for his work with ecology. Now, his contribution to ecology, what he said to do practically, most eighth-grade Americans and Canadians know. But why he was given the award? Because he accents, you can have all the technology, and if you don't change the consciousness, we still won't be out of the crisis. Mm. So what we are... Uh, a course I've taught for 30 years is a course on transition. How do people navigate transition? Well, we're at a time right now where the whole planet is in transition. And how do we find our way through transition? In alchemy, there's a very famous image. There's an old king swimming in a river with his crown on, going nowhere, <laughs> and gradually drowning. And there's a young prince standing, or princess, it could be today, standing on the hillside watching. And it represents, that's the new consciousness, that's the new order, and the old one is drowning. And that's where we are. Hmm. We cannot go meet this crisis as it will emerge unless there is a profound awakening of planetary consciousness. Now, I was blessed in my life to speak with a Russian cosmonaut who had circled this planet for six months. And he said to me, nobody who's done that comes back the same. I bet. 
You don't see the world, you don't see yourself, you don't see your nation, you don't see your culture in any of those ways that you used to. You see the planet against the vastness of the cosmos. And you realize how fragile we are, and there is one human family in one planet. And that's what the move that we have to make. And of course, whenever there is transition, there is always a movement toward regression. There's always an opposition. We resist change, we resist the unknown, but it's the only way humanity is going to be able to really make its way through environmental crisis, which it's continuing to create this very moment. Mm -hmm. There has to be a change of consciousness. So we're in that, and it's going to take several generations, but we're already in it. Yeah. Well, I think you, you do start to see a change in the will towards, I was just reading, this is just a headline that I saw uh, on my phone the other night, um, is th there was a poll done asking, I think they polled a thousand random Canadians about how we would feel about creating a mandatory ban on single-use plastics. And so the, um, the statistics were surprisingly high, that most Canadians would even pay more for the same product if it meant that it wasn't a single-use plastic. They, they would support this this transition and uh, so I was encouraged by reading that but I also think that I mean you read stories about this uh, this young kid in his early 20s from Europe somewhere I can't remember which country yeah, now that he's created this uh, the ocean cleanup she, project but, oh I'm sorry I was maybe a different project, yeah, there's, yeah so there's a young uh, I think he's maybe 24 or so now he started when he was 16 but he's just a brilliant mind and super passionate about saving the environment. And he's invented this system for collecting all of the plastic that's floating around in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch um, between Hawaii and San Francisco. And they've been um, trialing these uh, systems for the last couple of years. And of course, with anything, they have to have iteration after iteration and um, problem solve along the way. But it's not enough to just, oh, we found the solution. We, we've found a machine that can scoop it all up and we'll put it in a landfill. Carry on, folks. You know, keep using all your plastic straws. And, and, and what I am uh, encouraged by is that this young man um, sees that as just the beginning. That this, that's an important, you know, that it's triage. Let's get the plastic out of the friggin' ocean, but let's also change people's awareness and consciousness about the root underlying issues and problems and change behavior. So... It's something that isn't going to happen overnight, but what's difficult and what I struggle with is that there's this urgency, like we don't, we don't have decades and decades to get these things right because the damage that's being caused when you, and your example of just the ecological mess that we're in, and there's other areas of life and planet as well, but the ecology of the planet is, is so core and central to our human experience and to our ability to continue our species on into the future that we do have to take care of this planet. We have to, we have to steward it. Um, and it, it does trouble me that we're not making progress fast enough because of the damage that's being caused, whether it's deforestation or our relationship with, um, with wildfires. And I had a guest on the podcast uh, recently, a few weeks ago, uh, Javin Bernakovich talked about his uh, documentary film, Facing Fire, and our, mm -hmm. the human relationship with, with uh, wildfires and the role that they play. Um, there's so you could pick any, any one of these issues and, and spend your life 
just dedicating it to to that like this young man is with the the ocean cleanup but um i think what you're pointing to is that it's an internal journey this this idea of transition and uh, changing our paradigm changing our relationship with with self yes it's changing our relationship with self it's changing our relationship with the world it's changing the natural world it's changing our relationship with how we see the world, how we see the other. That's huge. Mm. So how do we you have, see the other. Of course. So do you have some examples of that you've seen that really get you excited when you've seen people have uh, an aha moment that sticks where they have shifted that, that relationship with other or with themselves that's creating something that excites you in the world? Well, at my age, when I have taken on as a, a task, let's say, is to offer to the younger generation, because your generation, my children's generation, are the ones who are going to face the ecological crisis as it accelerates. And when I try to offer, because I've seen so many people get paralyzed, the more information they know about how many species are dying, what's happening with fires, you can get paralyzed. And that helps not at all. Mm -hmm. You just go into a deep depression. So what I try to offer is the change I have seen in my lifetime. So in my lifetime, nobody in my neighborhood ever knew a Buddhist. Nobody I knew ever knew a Buddhist. You knew the word. Maybe you saw something in a book, but you never met a Buddhist. Now, where I've lived in Seattle, there's a, a Buddhist temple within walking distance of my home. It oh, is wow. not unusual for your generation to know about Buddhism at all. Mm. When we are the first generation, my generation, that had bookstores in which you could buy the books of all the different religions. Mm. When I grew up, I remember when I was a junior in high school, I went with family I was very close to, their son, and we went down to Florida. And I actually passed through places that had different water fountains and different washrooms for colored people and for white people. Wow. Now, I'm 74 years old. If I tell, when I would tell those stories to my kids, they would think of it as hundreds of years <laughs> ago. It wasn't. No. I want to be really clear. It wasn't. It's in my lifetime. No one of that time, even the most optimistic would have ever imagined that America would elect a black president and have an incredible black family in the White House. The change that I have seen in my lifetime? Let's look at another thing. Although we laugh about it now, it was so naive, we actually did have drills when I was a child. If there was going to be an atomic war between Russia and the United States, in which you got, it's absurd, but you got under your desk in case a bomb was dropped. <laughs> no one, no one could see a way out of that. Yeah. And then what happened? The whole collapse of the Soviet empire and all of its satellite countries without one war, without one exchange of conflict between the, all those armies. That's astounding. And nobody could see a way out. Right. So I've witnessed that in my lifetime. I see the potential for change is astounding. Women my age, they couldn't get their own credit card in their early 20s. Wow. They couldn't sign for their own house. You tell young women that today, they can't believe it. Yeah. 
but you talk to women who are my age, and they'll tell you straight out, that's how it was. Yeah. So in in fifty ish years, there's these all these examples of just incredible transition, and if it's true what they say that our world is accelerating in its pace of change, then it's just un it is literally unthinkable to imagine what the world will look like in another 50 years from, from today when I'm in my late 80s. I just, I, I cannot imagine. You're right. You can't because it will be a different world. I could never imagine. So my mother went to one other country in the course of her lifetime. Well, two, Canada, three, Canada, the United States, and England. Hmm. Okay, I've been to 60 countries. My son, who's only 35, has been to 65 countries. My other children have been at least to 20 countries. They're indicative of a younger generation all around the world. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, is woven into your generation because the world wants to weave itself together. And that kind of explains why in a bookstore you would see books on a dozen different religions when 20, 30 years ago... 40 years ago, you would never have heard of most of those religions. But at this, it's interesting to me that we're on this trend of increased um, diversity and increased variety. And inc- like we're, we're becoming way more multicultural. There's, um, there's all these examples of it. But then at the same time, and I, I don't know any stats on this, but I, I have the impression that um, people are overall less religious than they used to be. So there's, there's more people, say, in the States or in North America that are agnostic or atheist than there was a generation or two ago because it was just, you just go to church on Sunday. That's just what you do. Like in North American culture, that's just what you do. And now that there's this striving for the individual path, that uh, individualism and... Uh, and creating your own path is, is so the focus that we've, we've questioned and in a lot of good ways, like uh, your example of, you know, if we don't have fountains for, for colored, you know, the colored fountain and, and whites bathrooms or whatever, we, that's because people started to question and to rise up and say, no, this isn't right. But what do you think is the role of religion or of spirituality in a world where we're becoming more integrated, we're traveling more, we're becoming more multicultural, we're sharing more information, but a lot of people are also at the same time moving kind of away from traditional uh, faith traditions. Well, Carl Jung said, and I use this word in terms of the most profound truth, a myth is no longer viable when it doesn't meet the consciousness of the people. And a myth has to retell itself to meet the consciousness of the people. That's exactly what all the great religions are confronted with. They've been telling their religion to meet a consciousness that's a consciousness of the past. Remember, all the great founders of the religion never saw the earth from outer space. They had no idea that the cosmos in this present figure, but it keeps expanding every three years, has at least 55 trillion galaxies. We live in a whole different time of consciousness. And as Marcus Borg, who wrote a groundbreaking book on Christianity, so beautifully articulated, and he was a minister and taught in the religion department at the University of Oregon, the Christianity he was taught was for a medieval mind. Mm -hmm. So all the traditions at the present moment 
have to retell their tradition to meet the conditions of the world today and planetary consciousness. So those that fail to do that, of course, they're going to go the way of the dodo. <laughs> you know, yes. they really are losing their audience. They're, it's, if they're not contextually relevant in today's culture and human experience, why would people, other than just uh, like Robin, our minister in Basha and Pinocchio, our United Churches in those two communities, and he's often on the podcast, um, he talks about the importance of a tradition to be relevant and meaningful. Otherwise, it's just a habit. It says it perfectly. But it needs to be relevant and meaningful to a different consciousness in our time. Mm -hmm. We see the planet very differently than all previous generations. We've seen it photographed from outer space. We've seen it against the vast, incredible vastness of dark space. We have a different understanding and a different consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's what each tradition will have to do, is retell its story. And one of the things every tradition will have to give up is its triumphalism. Mm -hmm. Because it needs to see itself in the context of other world religions. And there are changes, real changes taking place. If you look at the Roman Catholic tradition that I grew up in, to see the present Pope on Holy Thursday night, when the ritual is that you wash, if you're a Pope, you wash the feet of the cardinals imitating Christ and the disciples. And this Pope goes to a detention center for young Muslim immigrants who were caught and washes their feet. Wow. That represents the new consciousness. That's incredible. Yes, that is incredible. So when, why do I feel optimistic? Because I see that kind of change. Why do I feel optimistic? Because there's a book called The Book of Joy. And it's about a week spent together between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa. They have both witnessed enormous suffering, far more than the average human being. And as we're reminded, the Dalai Lama is one of the oldest immigrants of the world. And their joy and their depth of sharing and their love for each other and their honoring of both the commonness of their traditions and the differences of their tradition, there's a model. Yeah. And they're both in their 80s. Wow. And they've seen the world change. They've seen enormous change. And the yet... Dalai Lama grew up in a time, he wrote a book called Toward a Kinship of Faith. When he was growing up, he only knew Buddhism. That's true of how many of us? And then the book is about how he has engaged and met all the great religions of the world and who opened the doors for him. Hmm. That's, what, that's the journey of our time. It's that pilgrimage that you're talking about. You got it. Of uh, incarnation. You so got that, it. That, and that's the name of your course that, or that you just completed this weekend and yes. among other courses that you teach. So why, um, how, or, or really why have you found yourself in the position that you are of wanting to um, lead others to... I'm going to start that question again. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I think you've talked a lot about the why of, of why you're wanting to um, to share the learnings and the, the lessons that you've had. We've, we've kind of explored that already. But um, so here's a, a better maybe uh, transition point. 
the this that story of of the washing of the feet is such a beautiful example of something that's right in the world and and us as a species heading in the right direction and i'm sure it was all over the news i didn't happen to see the story i hadn't heard about that happening and i and the reason that i probably didn't see it is that i generally try to stay away from the news because it is so negative um, most of the time, and even social media, which is just our own collective voices and stories uh, on a lot of platforms, has become quite toxic and negative. Uh, why do you think it is that stories that are based more in fear or in um, uh, negativity are, or alarm, uh, these alarmingly scary and horrible things that are going on in the world whether it's a mine collapsing or, you know, a, a natural disaster happening and wiping out thousands of people, we're so riveted by that information and, and that type of news. And yet these wonderful stories of people doing great things for, for others or for the planet hardly make the press. Well, as the Dalai Lama reminds us, there are millions of acts of loving kindness every day in the world. Do you read about those in the newspapers? Do you see them in the reports in the television? Do you see them on the internet? No. No, what you see, so his point is to say, really remember that because humanity is much better, has much greater goodness than what's portrayed in the image of humanity in the media. Why do they do it? Because first of all, it's hyped. The way it's presented is hyped. Watch the music that's played behind some mm. of the TV programs about the news. Look at the way the emotion is of the newscaster when it's delivered. And they know, hook people on excitement. Mm -hmm. It sells better. Mm -hmm. There's a desperateness. Put fear out, that hooks people. Mm -hmm. So you whip them up in fear, and then they want to find out more what's happening because they're in that state of fear. Mm -hmm. So the media participates and even media that tries to be responsible participates in that. So I've tried to be really discerning. Like, where can I find good media when people ask me? Because I have concern for people who, have, who cut the whole thing off and have no sense of being informed what's happening in the world. We need, that's part of planetary consciousness. We need to sense what's going on in the planet, not just in our local neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So what are really good programs? So what I've discovered is there's a very good program on CNN. It is done by a long-term correspondent by CNN named Christine Anandpour. And for years she worked as a foreign correspondent. They've expanded her program to an hour, I think every day. They've given her a staff. And she does in-depth meetings with people. We don't get just the headlines, just the blah, 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 yeah. and the soundbite. And we need depth. Yeah. We need depth. Well, th so. that's really what I love about doing this podcast is that sitting with someone for half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, you can get so much more in depth than you ever could uh, just through a quick little comment. Or, and my, and my, my day to day work is uh, in video production where I am constrained to trying to create a, a one minute video or a one minute story about something. And it's, it's really challenging. And I'm, I'm tortured by all that material that's left on the cutting room floor that I wish I could get out to the world or share those parts of the story. And I'm forced to just uh, 
condense and condense and condense because people's attention span is so short. Well, and then there's no depth. We get a soundbite, mm -hmm. but there's no depth of understanding. And part of it is that the world is so busy and pressured. People don't have time. The way mm -hmm. the culture is built, there is so much pressure. So much you have to do all the time. So people don't explore the depth of the issues, and that's not what's offered to them. The Dalai Lama wrote a book called Ethics for a New Millennium. It is now also out in another title, I believe. And one of the things that he said very clearly is we need not a religious revolution, we need a spiritual revolution. Because a spiritual revolution can include the religious and the non-religious. And what it needs to be based upon is a core group of common ethics and values that all the religious people can see as central and all the non-religious people can see as central. Mm. And that's a way to go forward. We need a core group of values or ethics by which we can all live and all agree this is how we'll go forward. And I think there's enormous relevance in that. And the other thing that I would also say is a lot of people have moved out of religion but still call them spiritual, call themselves spiritual. So, for example, the state of Washington and all the polling that's been done in the United States is the state in which people most define themselves as spiritual, not religious, but spiritual, hmm. but deeply committed to a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Not part of an institutionalized religion, but a deeply spiritual life. And I think we need to expand our pieces, the way our categories are. And some people left religion because the God image that was given to them in their youth no longer matched their life. Right. So leaving that was appropriate. They grew into a greater consciousness. It doesn't mean that there isn't a reality of God or some larger dimension, but the image that they were given of that it was no longer relevant to their life. They couldn't mm. believe it. And so the question then becomes, what do, you, what do you add to your life that replaces or fills, fulfills that need and fills the role that religion used to fill? For someone like that, I think it starts them as a seeker. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go out and explore. And find it for yourself. And yes. Yeah. And Jung saw that coming. He said very clearly... The era where people were born in one tradition, were never exposed to another tradition, and died in that tradition is coming to an end. Yeah, it sure is. And he said, there's a, a gift of that because there's no questioning. You have the answers for every stage given to you by the tradition. If you believe in those, it carries you. Yeah. As he pointed out, for those who follow this new path, and it is a new path emerging, there's greater freedom, but there's much more responsibility. Mm. You have to do the work. Yeah. So one of the things that Carl Jung said is you need to search out and find what's the myth that you're going to meet your death with. Hmm. Because death is such a large archetype, it will overwhelm you unless you have a mythic framework with which to meet it. Which means you're going to have to search out that myth that strikes the core of your being as being relevant, not just one that's given to you. Hmm. Choosing it. Yeah, you're going to have to search out and then discern what one speaks to the core of my being. What myth is right for me 
in order to meet, it is my way to meet the archetype of death. And here I mean myth in a very profound way. How do I meet that archetypal experience? So I'm not completely overwhelmed by it. Mm. But so, that's a lot of work. Um, do you feel comfortable sharing anything about what yours is? Like what that is, what that looks like for you or what you've found? I found key practices. Yeah. So one of the key practices I found has come from a Buddhist teacher of mine. And what he said, in fact, some of his teaching is now used in hospice programs throughout England. But one of them is, consider who you call out for at the moment of death. Hmm. Get very clear on it and don't wait to die to call out. Practice it. So for some people, they'll call out for Christ or they'll call out for Buddha. For other people, they'll call out for a a marvelous grandmother that they had, in which there was a great connection. But to, f to recognize in the process of dying, you don't have to be alone. Hmm. Who are you going to call out for? And the other practice that, for me, frames a lot of my mythic orientation toward death, which was also said to me by my Jewish mentor um, and my Buddhist mentor, it's place in common, what state do you long to be in when you're dying? Practice that state before you die. Hmm. Practice it, practice it, practice it. So it becomes an integral part of you. And the third is a lot of what this program is about. If Christ and Buddha were able to say at the end of their life, it is complete, it is fulfilled. What had to have been lived has been lived. How do we get to that place? That's the mythic framework I want to meet my life from. Hmm that it's come to completion. What I had to live, I've lived. There is fulfillment in my life, and there's that piece of completion. It is complete. So there are three core practices for me, as they're a mythic framework for me, drawn from different teachers of different traditions, but um, of how I long to meet death the state I would long to be in, who I would call it forth, and to be in a place of completion. Hmm. We, uh, this is, pieces of this conversation are, are reminding me a lot of the episode that uh, I did recently with Bill Harder, who you know, and works here in cameras with the Cameras Hospice Society. And uh, he talks about the importance of bringing death out of the closet. Like, even just in your, your talking about it, and, and your own personal views and practices, one thing that popped into my mind is that that could be looked at as like, oh, why would you want to live life each day thinking about your death? But I think that that emerged for me, that thought emerged, because we're so used to being so insulated from it, of never thinking about it. Like, why would you want to talk about that? And that it can be woven in or integrated into our daily practice or our daily consciousness without it becoming an unhealthy obsession about the end or a fear. Like, you don't sound like your relationship with that, that mythic structure is at all based in being scared of dying. It's more in there's work to be done to prepare for the completion. Well, also, to just refer back to an earlier period, when I was a child, there was no hospice. So one of the great changes in our time is throughout America, Canada, Europe, etc. Hospice is everywhere. 
That was not offered to people, not just in my childhood. For a whole number of years of my life, that was not the universal piece of the being aware to be with people in a process of dying. But I also want to say, in Buddhism, you'll often come across a number of passages about death. And it's not to be morbid, it's to wake up. You have a limited number of years here, and what are you doing with your life? Yeah. And at the end of your life, will you feel complete? Will you have regrets? Will you be confused by all the uncompleted pieces in you? And my Jewish mentor, Reb Zalman, also taught a whole piece about the spiritual tasks of aging and how do you prepare for death. Not in any way as a sense of doom and gloom and denial of life. In fact, how do you claim life more fully? Wake mm. up. It's not going to be here forever. So when I die, part of that completion is I've lived. Mm -hmm. I've lived. So one of the things I remind people of is what are your soul dreams? And have you lived them? And how long are you going to put them off? Hmm. Because your soul is in them. I don't mean fantasies, but I mean deep dreams that mm. live within you. Like why we're here. Yes, and also a longing to live something is a soul dream. Mm. And when we live it, something of our soul gets to unfold, and we get to meet our soul in living it. So how does a person find that soul dream if they're not sure what theirs is, <laughs> if they don't feel like they've ever put their finger on it? Go. It, Buddhism teach, teaches very wisely about the negative side of desire. Sufism teaches very wisely about the positive side of desire. So how do you find your way forward in Sufism? You go to your deepest longing. What's your deepest longing? Now, you need discernment, not to be distracted by other kinds of longings. But what's your deepest longing? To live in this lifetime. Hmm. And I don't mean, you know, a bucket list. Right. I mean the deepest longing, what do you long to live in this lifetime that will give you the sense of completion at the end? Hmm. And then don't be distracted from it. So just spend time in discernment, spend time in exploration of that. You have to, because it comes from inside. Mm -hmm. You have to. Yeah, allow it the time and the, the, the space, hold space for it to, to present itself. Yes, and, to, and then if you feel the depth of it, finding the right time and the right conditions in which to live it. Mm. And Buddhism also makes us aware that we need to be discerning about when the conditions are right so it can actually be lived. Right. Because, yeah, there, so, is, there is a season and a time for all things. Beautifully said. Well, this has been a journey in itself, <laughs> spending this hour with you. Thank and you. it's just been expanding my mind and consciousness just here and now. And I really want to thank you for, for what you've brought into my awareness and, and added to, um, to this, uh, this podcast that we do. And I know that it will have impacted a lot of people. So, Well, I want to thank you because uh, one of my sources of optimism is uh, 
people like the two of you of your generation and like my children, what they're doing with their lives. So uh, the Dalai Lama places enormous hope in your generation and has faith. It's not based on just idealism. He really believes your generation will make an incredible change. Hmm. I hope he's right. So, <laughs> that's right. And uh, thank you. Just a joy to meet you. Yeah, and well, a real affirmation uh, that the earth will be in good hands. Well, in the hands of many of your generation. I hope so. I, I hope so for my children's sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a reason to keep acting. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> for sure. Thank you, Atun. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and sharing it with you. And I would encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes on the show. There's lots there to choose from, lots of different topics and some wonderful guests. And we appreciate you taking the time to join us in this community of faith. So enjoy the rest of your day and be well. Thanks again for listening.